TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. This podcast is sponsored by Freedom Mortgage, dedicated to veterans and your homeownership needs. Visit FreedomMortgage.com forward slash CBS Vets, NMLS 2767, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Phil Briggs, and this time on Vet Story. Will someone from his depleted, food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button? But it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his. When I read the tweet, I just laughed. We begin bombing in five minutes. Ambassador Nikki Haley did not sound impressed. We will never accept a nuclear North Korea. Let it be known at periodic intervals that the United States is by far the world's most powerful military bar none. Why not? Talk some smack to this guy. I mean, he's a bully. Every president will yield to the domestic audience at times when they really shouldn't. We should only say we're going to use military force when we're ready to back it up. Welcome to another vet story. And what we just heard was the anatomy of the debate we'll call who's got the bigger button. Coming up, we'll talk to a retired Air Force colonel. Eric Gopner, about how to handle North Korea and what to think of tough-talking tweets. But we'll begin this conversation with Connecting Vets reporter Matt Saintsing. How are you, sir? Friend of the show, Matt Saintsing. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? You always like it when I refer I to you like as it. friend of the show. I do like it because I'm on the clock right now. So it's like I'm in here like as your personal favor. But it's like, no. I'm like, oh. The only reason I'm here talking to you is because I'm getting paid. I want, I want you and everyone to know that. Right. <laughs> right. Full, in full disclosure, you are being paid for this interview. So I am, thank yes. you very much. We couldn't even get away from this story this week if we tried. Right. But but uh, let me just start the mood, shall we? With a, with with a little music. And if you don't recognize this, it's okay. Oh, it's, good. It's North Korean propaganda. Is this really? Since everyone has a stable job, every morning they go to work merrily. And what you can't see is it's a montage of all different North Korean citizens happily getting on buses or trains or trams, heading to the factories or workplaces that they have. For no other reason other than they love it, right? Yeah, 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 because, I mean, everyone has a job. Everyone's happy in North Korea. And um, Um, apparently you can't get away from North Korean propaganda. (laughs) You can't even get away from Kim Jong-un because when he speaks, the world listens. And this week... We have ourselves a button measuring contest. Matt, let's first start with something you've probably never heard before. That's the voice of Kim Jong-un. Okay. I agree. I've never heard him speak. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard his voice either. It's different from what I imagined. 
Right, right. I mean, I lo- looking at him, you figure it's going to be kind of higher pitched or he's going to sound young and kind of like juvenile, sophomoric, you know, hey, meh, right. I hate America. Right. <clears throat> That's taken from his New Year's Day speech, which caused this whole, f- this whole ruckus, ruckus, yeah, if you will, yeah. that is heard around the world. Uh, of course, during that speech that we just heard the clip from, he had mentioned that uh, North Korea is strong and that the nuclear button is always on his desk. Yeah. Kind of that ominous imagery of pushing a button right. and then destroying the world. Basically right. talking shit, right? Trying to get our goat, trying right. to bait us into some sort of... Uh, Something. Yeah, bait yeah. us into some kind of situation. Yeah. To which, of course, we all know now, the button measuring contest started there. And Trump took to Twitter to reply, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated the nuclear button is on his desk at, quote, all times. Will someone from his depleted, food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button? But it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. Savage. Boom. Yeah. Mic drop. Yeah. Well, that brings us to here, where we sit today. Me consulting the foreign policy wisdom and a man who's pretty well-traveled and has studied around the world. Um, You've actually worked uh, with the Asian media. Uh, Japanese. I work for the second largest uh, newspaper in Japan. So, I mean, you you know of some things cross-culturally. Yeah. Sure. And we got into talking about this, uh, you know, over a cup of coffee the other day. And I think we look at this different. Yeah. I look at this and say, I liked the tweet. I've seen what strategic patience and I've seen, you know, how the kind of foreign policy has played out over the last, say, decade. Yeah. And by seeing it, I mean... I've witnessed little or nothing happen except for the word sanctions get thrown around. And I don't know from what sanctions mean to the average North Korean. I don't know. Are they starving? Do they have zero to eat? Is there going to be, you know, protests in the street? I've heard none of that. I just hear government officials and diplomatic officials say that, you know, we're going to increase sanctions. Yeah. And I see this tweet. I see what's been going on back and forth with the missile test after missile test after missile test. And then, boom, New Year's Eve. First thing he does is talk about his button, and Trump whips out his button. His is bigger. I say, why the hell not? Why not push back at this guy? He's a menace. He tests missiles. He doesn't seem to have global safety, security, harmony, and well-being in mind at all. Why not a shot across the bow and talk some smack to this guy? I mean, yeah. he's a bully. So where do I start with that? So first of all, um, <laughs> I, I kind of want to go back in time a little bit uh, to talk about another president, another Republican president that has been very much lionized and people love him today. And that's President Ronald Reagan. Okay. And in 1984, just a year before I was born, <laughs> nice. I just want to make you feel old. Shut up. President Reagan was giving a radio address. Right. And as you know, we work in radio. And for those of you who never been around a mic before, sometimes it's always turned on. And sometimes you have what is known as a hot mic moment. Right. And this is what I'm going to repeat from president Reagan in 1984, the height of the cold war. My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. In 1984, the president of the United States quipped frivolously i would say about starting nuclear war with at the time one of our existential probably the existential threat Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the outcry that happened after that was insane not only nationally but internationally 
to the tune where Russian uh, state media, or excuse me, not Russian state media, Russian military officials uh, didn't know what to make of that. It was, you know, he, they didn't know that the president was just joking around and kind of just like smoking and joking with his with his advisors. Right. Uh, what he knew was that the president of the United States was talking about the possibility of open nuclear war. So let's pause for a second and consider that. I did some digging, and I found the actual clip of an NBC Nightly newscast in 1984 about this incident. It was posted to YouTube by user Kronos Zeris back in 2012. It was the joke heard around the world, the one by President Reagan about bombing the Soviet Union, and it resulted in a Soviet red alert, and it became a campaign issue in this country. The president was joking his way through an audio check on August 11th. I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. Just imagine if that wasn't a sound check and that was actually broadcast worldwide. We would have been talking about the incident that started World War III. Now, they didn't have the Internet or Twitter back then, but reporter Marvin Kalb went on to describe the Soviets' response some days later. A coded message left Soviet military headquarters in Vladivostok. It said, in part, we now embark on military action against the U.S. forces. The code was instantly broken by U.S. and Japanese intelligence. This is what then happened. A special command unit in Ussurisk went on wartime alert. Key Japanese military units raised their readiness status. Soviet naval vessels in the North Pacific, baffled by the order, checked with Vladivostok. Confusion. U.S. intelligence urgently canvassed for signs of an imminent Soviet attack. Found none. Congressman Michael Barnes told NBC News that he had been briefed about the situation by the NSA. There was what they described as a wayward operator in the Soviet Far Eastern Command who sent out a message that a state of war existed between the United States and the Soviet Union. For a few brief moments in 1984, we were on the brink of nuclear war. And we may never know why the ominous Soviet alert got canceled. But the way they end this news story is priceless. Most officials said no comment. The one did speculate that the Russian might have been drunk. <laughs> that might be my favorite way to end a news story ever. <laughs> now let's compare that with President Trump's current Twitter feud with North Korea's Kim Jong-un which is very much broadcast worldwide and in real time. But he's not exactly announcing the start of military operations, right? So again, we return to our conversation with ConnectingVets.com reporter Matt Saintsing and ask, what's wrong with some tough talk? What good is it actually going to do? In my opinion, um, you said it kind of feels good to have the president finally stand up after uh, what, what, you, you know, what we've known as strategic patience and for those listening who don't know, strategic patience was basically the Obama policy to North Korea, where we're not going to say or do anything to North Korea. We're just going to wait them out in hopes that they kind of come to their senses. Uh, and or hoping that the sanctions, that the sanctions. are so strong that right. they almost kind the of regime implode yeah. and they will elect a new leader from within because we've economically... Cut them off. Yeah. Starve them, if you, if you will. Starve the regime, I should say, not the whole North Korean people, but basically it's targeted for the regime. And I think you can objectively say, it's a fair argument to say that's probably one of, North Korea is probably one of Obama's uh, greatest policy failures. I think I would say that. And Matt's not alone. At a recent Cato Institute panel discussion back in November of 2017, former governor and experienced North Korean negotiator Bill Richardson said the same thing. 
And I think what was adopted was a strategic patience policy, that the way we move North Korea is more sanctions, more pressure, international pressure. And that didn't work. That hasn't worked. Richardson painted a pretty vivid picture of what it's like to negotiate with North Korea. They don't think like we do, okay? I mean, you're, Ted, you've talked about some very rational give and takes, uh, quid pro quos. They don't believe in quid pro quos. I remember when the first time I negotiated with the North Koreans, uh, this was for the pilots, uh, as they gave me one of the uh, American pilots, they said to me, well, you know, you have to pay for the ammunition that we use to shoot them down. <laughs> they were serious. This is how they think. And their idea, Ted, of a concession, you know, you say, okay, so you get rid of uh, no testing. And they'll say, uh, wait a minute. You know what we'll do with this Richardson guy? We'll, we'll give him more time to come to our position. That'll be his concession. That's their concession. Governor Richardson also detailed why, from his firsthand experience, the people of North Korea aren't ready to overthrow their leader because of sanctions. You know, the, you walk around and the people, they, 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 they look down, they look a little angry, but they move fast. Uh, you go in the subway, it, it's like, uh, what, what do you call that old program? Um, the X-Files, where it's like the 1950s in Germany. It's like they don't seem to have a worry in the world, except, you know, they they don't have coats when it's cold. You go in a school and there's no heat. There's no heat. You know, all these kids are bundled up and there's little electricity. Electricity goes out. They, they don't have much. But you ask me, are they suffering? Yeah. But is it sufficient to topple the regime or deny legitimacy to the regime? I don't think so. No. So why not continue the trajectory of tough talk? We asked a veteran and a foreign policy expert. Eric Opner, visiting research fellow at the Cato Institute, retired colonel, United States Air Force. Thank you for being on Vet Story, Colonel. Thanks very much, Phil. It's good to be with you. Right on. Hey, real quick, before we get into the North Korea topic, uh, I'm curious about your background, and we don't need to get you know too far into the weeds with your biography, but I read a couple bullet points that I wanted you to share. So 23 years in the world's greatest air force, I uh, had the privilege of commanding military forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, and other tours of duty included Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Japan, Guam, and various places in the United States. Now, it's with respect to your vast background, commanding troops, your understanding of places like Japan and Guam, you sort of understand our interests in that area. I got to ask, what's wrong with President Trump's tough talk against a guy who's arguably a jerk of a leader? Multiple thoughts come to mind. Uh, the first is I don't know that you can say that President Trump's talk has been tough. I think his talk has been all over the place. Um, I don't think the average American, myself included, knows if diplomatic options are still possible. I think at one point he said they were, then I think he said they weren't, and then I think he said they were again. Um, is is it true that only military force can solve this problem? Are, are we still working with China? I remember him tweeting thanks to China, and then I remember him tweeting disparaging things to China as it relates to their role with North Korea. So it's very confusing, which is the opposite of tough. Um, and for me, the, the most, the best capturing of what's going on right now is embarrassing. Um, it's embarrassing, you know, from an American perspective of being seen like this on the world stage where our president 
has really bizarre notions of the measure of a man, where he keeps going back to very strange topics and qualifiers of what it means to be a president, what it means to be a man, what it means to be an American. And so relating to that, relating to your earlier point about talking tough, you know, the only value aside from a domestic one, which really I hope is not the main consideration here, the only value in talking tough from an international perspective is you're seeking to deter your adversary and you're seeking to communicate in clear and unambiguous language what will happen if an inappropriate step is taken. And the concern I have right now, and I think a number of people would share that concern, is if you're North Korea, what message is currently sitting in your brain? Is it the last message he sent you? Is it the most TV reality show message that he sent you? You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Is it what Secretary of State Tillerson is saying? Our policy is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And so it's very confusing. And if you are trying to influence the behavior of the North Korean regime, I don't know that you can precisely say what message is getting through that will be influencing them one way or the other. Mm, Okay. Talk to me about where we have been. Uh, we hear the word strategic patience, and uh, in layman terms, I don't think a lot of people understand kind of what strategic patience was. I don't know that I can help you out entirely on that question, um, but the idea is twofold. One is peace on the Korean Peninsula, irrespective of whether unification does or does not ever take place. The idea is enduring peace, and the second part is a non-nuclear Korean Peninsula. And the assumption that I believe previous administrations had made, and it was a fairly coherent assumption that transferred regardless of the party that was was occupying the White House, was the idea that through diplomatic means and through a potential, you know, basket of economic sanctions and other influencers, we can sufficiently modify North Korean behavior that they will not achieve nuclear weapon status. And the idea of strategic is macro, big picture, long-term, mm-hmm. patience, obviously, um, as opposed to, to jumping the gun. And so I think that was a fairly consistent set of beliefs held by uh, previous presidents and national security administrations. Now, I'm not asking you to speak for a specific administration, but as a guy kind of that has some experience and knows of some things here, didn't that fail? I mean, the guy's been testing missiles. And clearly we're on the precipice of him owning a nuke, whether or not he does already or whether we're six weeks away, one may never know. But didn't the idea of us just putting on the word some sanctions and having some meetings at the U.N., it didn't seem to work. <laughs> you make a great point, and it leads to, I think, a set of like really complex uh, issues. Um, yes, North Korea is currently at a place that we wish they had never gotten to. But in terms of, I think you'd mentioned, you know, is it failure, is it success? And I guess it depends on what you view as alternate outcomes. Um, The fact that we have prevented, you know, a resumption of hostilities on the peninsula is good. The fact that North Korea is at some stage in their nuclear development, where they seem to have done, uh, you know, a fairly good job of showing ballistic missile technology in flight and uh, simultaneously very, uh, you know, advanced in terms of their, a nuclear program. The mating between the two, I don't know that that has occurred yet, but that's obviously very problematic. So if that's the reality, what does the United States do? And what we've been trying to do is primarily working through uh, China. That obviously hasn't gone as well as we wish. And so what other options does that leave you with? And you increasingly hear people saying, well, that leaves us with war. That's, that's where I think it gets very complex because 
And we just don't know what happens. Once you initiate military operations against an adversary, you cannot predict where those operations are going to lead you. Yeah, like, I mean, it's one thing to talk some smack across the bar, but the surefire way to get in a fight is throw a punch. Correct. Yeah. And I think if you're the president or you're anybody in a current White House administration, I don't think you can publicly say that it's acceptable for a power as malignant as North Korea to have a nuclear weapon. But the flip side may be that that may be, I I don't know that I want to go further than that, but Mm -hmm, you're really mm -hmm. at a difficult position if you're the White House, regardless of what party affiliation, regardless of timing. I don't think you really can come forward and say this is acceptable. And so that really puts them in a very difficult bind as they communicate back to us, their domestic audience, of what our options are. Now, you're a man that not only knows some public policy and knows foreign policy and and things about the way the government conducts itself, but you also know the inner workings of the military itself as a former colonel in the Air Force. Uh, That said, I have to ask, what is a good option going forward? Um, If the military option striking first is certainly a dangerous, if not almost deadly option, what is something within our control or what is something that we could do that would help, I don't know, uh, limit the amount of nukes North Korea can get, uh, possibly make them put them down? I mean, is there anything, is there any option that we could do other than some sort of robust show of force with the military? I would list three items. The first, and I think arguably the most important, um, tied for the most important, is our relationship and our connection with both South Korea and Japan. Uh, We have substantial military forces in both of those countries. We have very strong, enduring relationships with both of those countries. And I think the argument would be that if anything tragic happened on the peninsula, those two countries would suffer immensely more than the United States would. And so, one, there's strength in in numbers. So let's get as close together with South Korea and uh, Japan as possible. And then, two, I think we perhaps ought to listen more to what options uh, they might be talking about, because they're the ones who have a local knowledge, particularly South Koreans, that far surpasses ours. And they're the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences more than the United States is. When we see on sort of American uh, news networks this idea of it's the North Koreans targeting the United States, I understand that plays well for ratings. And I understand that that's a possibility. But I think if we were to rank order the possibilities, South Koreans being targeted and or the Japanese being targeted would far numerically more likely, more probable than um, the United States. And so I would start there. The second option I would go with is China, and I don't have a whole lot of new things or positive things to offer, but China does have the most control outside of North Korea of any uh, country. You know, they have the most leverage. And I don't know exactly how to succeed in that area. It would seem to be that it has to be something broad-based that has to include the European Union, potentially the United Nations. And I will agree that China has so far appeared unwilling to modify their behavior much in response to international pressure. But that seems to be the second leverage point. And the third one you already alluded to, which is the United States needs to continue without an aggressive, you know, sort of Teddy Roosevelt walk softly, carry a big stick, is just let it be known at periodic intervals that the United States is by far the world's most powerful military bar none. And we have 17 years of uninterrupted combat experience behind all that technology and all the size of our military forces. And we don't need to do it in a bragging or arrogant or in your way, uh, in your face type of way, but we just need to periodically make sure the message gets there. You know, look at our military, look at how strong we are. 
I'm not sure any message crafting that comes out of this administration is going to be short of bragging. Um, we tend to speak that language pretty damn well. Uh, but uh, some interesting points there. Um, as we wrap this up, I, I, I just wanted to ask, if we were to go uh, and try to get China to join us with fiercer sh- sanctions, how do we, how does one enforce that? Do we have anything to offer China more than we already give them? I mean, frankly, Walmart, if you go there, virtually everything you find is made in China, it seems like. Um, they already have economic success globally. What could we offer China to make them hold hands with us a little tighter and put the screws to North Korea? Well, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, nobody's uh, come up with the answer yet. Uh, so I doubt that I'm going to help get you very far on that. Um, I, I think my argument would be just to think through possibly some counterintuitive um, scenarios. And I don't know what those might be. But if you open up the possibilities to include economic, to include um, travel, just wide open and don't take anything off the table, no sacred cows. I think that, you know, path would would potentially lead to some success. I think the other point is that we have to balance um, the domestic audience with what we're trying to accomplish, accomplish with China. Every president, you know, will yield to the domestic audience at times when they really shouldn't. And that can hinder what they're trying to accomplish internationally. And so that probably goes to some level of back channel, some level of quiet negotiations that aren't necessarily publicized, that maybe are not in a public setting, um, much like you know Nixon with his um, detente back in the, in the 70s with China. Yeah, which uh, when you bring up the Nixon era, uh, brings up the two words I've heard Governor Bill Richardson use in the past, and that's sports diplomacy. Uh, are we talking Dennis Rodman <laughs> here? Are we talking sending in the Rodman and... Uh, Seeing what we can do. <laughs> that is an awesome idea. I was thinking more like uh, some curling because of the Winter Olympics, but I like what you're saying. That's good. Nice. Well, I like what you're saying, Colonel. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts. And uh, as always, appreciate your days in the Air Force. Uh, thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you, Phil. So again, we find ourselves at the end of a story that has no ending. It seems like the only things the experts do agree on is that all options need to be on the table. I did find it interesting that the Cato Institute panel featuring Governor Richardson did have a question from the crowd that was kind of a throwback to the past. I think the, uh, our opportunity now is with the visit to China and to Russia that we join with them. And the hammer is going to the U.N. and saying, we're going to do a naval blockade. Nothing but food and medicine gets in by sea. China says we agree and we'll close the borders. And then we just say, if you want your Kim Jong-un, you can keep your Kim Jong-un. We just don't want the nukes, the missiles, the biologicals, the chemicals, the aggression, etc. Do you all remember when Reagan and Gorbachev met in Iceland? And for like one evening, they both decided to get rid of nuclear weapons. All right. And then their advisors got to them the next day. And of course, it got canceled. You know, I. You know, you've posited something interesting. I don't know if it's doable, but but I think that's what may be needed. Uh, You sometimes wonder whether bureaucracy and process hinders something broader and big. Um, You know, I, I. 
I'm not diminishing what you said. I, I don't think it's realistic right now, but you know, let's let's be clear. Cato Institute, you guys are big thinkers. Get some get some options. Does the solution to our future problems lie in the past? Well, looks like only time will tell. For Vet Story, I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again on ConnectingVets.com. Special thanks to contributors for this podcast, including sound bites from the Associated Press, Warren Levinson, YouTube contributor Kronos Zeris, and the Cato Institute. You can find the video of that interesting panel discussion featuring Governor Bill Richardson and Ted Galen Carpenter, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, at CatoCato.org. Search How Do You Solve a Problem Like North Korea? is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.